Hello and welcome to DairyPod. I'm John Penry from Dairy Australia. In this episode, we shall be hearing from Kath Jenkins, who was working on a series of environmental management case studies with Dairy Australia. She is discussing some on-farm practice change measures with Jeff Rollinson, who is from the Landcare Network and has been working in this area with dairy farmers across southwest Victoria. Talking about some of the great work dairy farmers are doing to improve environmental outcomes and natural asset utilisation, this discussion provides some suggestions on practical first steps when looking at farm projects, and these include shelterbouts, soil health, waterways, biodiversity, and some insight into how you might seek grants to support on-ground works. Hi, I'm Kath Jenkins, and I'm working with Dairy Australia to produce some case studies that show the great work dairy farmers are doing on their properties to make changes to their farm businesses to improve environmental outcomes, improvements in natural assets, as well as productivity benefits for their farms. Today's episode, we're going to be talking to a service provider, Jeff Rollinson. Jeff has a great history working with many dairy farmers in southwest Victoria, supporting them to make the changes that they want to make on their properties to improve their environmental farm management practices. Thanks for being here with us today, Jeff. My pleasure, Kath. Great to have you here. Now, just as a bit of a start off, I suppose, or just by way of introduction, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and who you work for and the kind of work that you're interested in? Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. So um, my role is with uh, HB District Landcare Network. Um, I'm the Landcare Coordinator and have been for a period of uh, 10 or 12 years, which is a fairly long time in our world, Kath, in the Landcare world. Uh, but before then, though, I worked in the media industry with the Age of the Mournable Standard before I went back to uni to, um, to retraining to environmental science. But that experience wasn't lost. Communications is a really big thing with the Landcare Network, so uh, so those other skills have come in uh, very handy. Um, to give your listeners a little bit of an idea on um, what the Landcare Network is about, it it covers 170,000 hectares in southwest Victoria. Um, it was formed about 35 years ago. So prior to me becoming the land care coordinator, there was a lot of good work done in the landscape, primarily with dairy farmers because the Hatesbury district is uh, an area of land that was cleared almost specifically for dairy farming. Um in terms of geographically where it covers, so you've got Tim Boone, Cobden, Terang, Simpson, Port Campbell, Peterborough. It's, it's uh, quite a large area. And within the network area, there are um, five uh, land care groups and other, other groups as well. So in terms of working with the dairy farmers, they that probably comprises most of the work that we do. Uh, land management is... Um, 90% is private land uh, with uh, farming in the region, so it's a very big part of it. We do a bit of work around uh, national parks, particularly down on the coast, uh, sometimes working with uh, Parks Victoria. So, yeah, we're very busy. We cover a lot of territory, and um, and we've seen some extraordinary changes in the uh, decade that I've been with Landcare, uh, extraordinary changes in dairy farms with with changes to farming practices. That's fantastic, um, Jeff. And for those, um, Landcare is a pretty 
exciting organization. It's um, my experience with Landcare is it's got a lot of very passionate people involved in it. Um, but for those people that don't know much about Landcare, could you just give us a little quick synopsis of what <laughs> a bit of a summary of of what Landcare is? Yeah, sure. So it was formed about thirty five years ago. Um, um, Bob Hawke, I think, declared Landcare the uh, the 90s, the dec- decade of land care, um, and it was formed with uh, Philip Twine. So he actually had a farmer and, a, and I guess you would say uh, a, an activist were the two key people who formed it. Um, and that was really um, such a big advantage for land care in that it became apolitical. Um, so over the past 35 years, from the time that Heather Campbell and Bob Hawke and Joan Kerner, these Philip Toyne, these key people originated the movement, um, it's evolved into I think around about 5,000 main care groups across Australia. So it's a very large uh, volunteer-based uh, network that primarily does stuff like planting trees, working with farmers, but also education is a big part of it as well. And over time, there it's I guess funding has ebbed and flowed. So sometimes there have been happy times, uh, the rivers of gold period. I think they called it about twenty or thirty years ago. Um, now we have to compete uh, very vigorously for funds. But uh, most land care networks have been very artful in finding ways to chase funds and survive and, and provide the services that they have. I will point out that Landcare, no two Landcare networks are the same. We are mostly working with farmers, but two or three Landcare networks down the track, they might be working with coastal community groups. So Landcare is one of those very general terms that can mean different things in different areas. Okay. And as you, thank you for that summary. That's fantastic. Um, and I think as you said, you know, there's over 5,000 land care groups. And, I mean, I think then if you added on the number of people that haven't, have had a connection with land care along the way, um, it would be, you know, it's, it's, a huge, it's a huge network right across the country and across different sectors as well. Um, obviously, yes. daring is a big focus for Hatesbury District Land Care Network, as you mentioned, um, but in other parts of, of the country, you know, it might have a mixed you know, or cropping or livestock or um, other types of industries as well as those coastal ones that you mentioned. So just thinking about it in terms of your experience with the Hatesbury District Landcare Network, what's the, um, you know, why should a dairy farmer um, that might be listening to this podcast be interested in landcare? Like what's, you know, what's the conne- what's a connection um, that they can sure. make to landcare? Yeah, look, I think the the connection is um, well partly for funding opportunities. So, um, and I'll talk about our land care network as as uh, that's most familiar uh, with me. Mm. Uh, so they may make connections in terms of seeking funding for on ground projects. Um, in the past, that has mostly been associated with applying for funding to plant trees. That's the sort of you know the folded hand care lands and. The trees are the most recognised brand after Coca-Cola in Australia, I think, or thereabouts. Okay. Um, But in more recent times, so um, we have been getting into the field of regenerative ag practices and I think particularly in the past 
a uh, few years. A lot of dairy farmers are, are looking at, um, I guess, some of the pressures that they're facing, um, not only financial, but with their natural resources, water quality. Um, they're seeing that uh, some of the stock might be suffering from, say, the effects of wind. Mm-hmm. Um, so shelter belts are a big thing. And one thing that's not normally associated with land care, but we've had a particular interest in soil health and biodiversity. So um, all of this is underpinned by, um, you know, it's not, it's, they're not areas of activity that are about nice things to do. They're all sort of underpinned by uh, being, I guess, ec- but they need to stack up ec- economically is what I'm saying so that we encourage and support activities that not only improve biodiversity and soil health, but we make sure that farmers don't go broke in the process. Okay. So activities, um, for example, planting trees, um, there might be some productivity benefits to farmers by providing shade and shelter to livestock, um, but also to pastures, um, there, there could be some soil health benefits there as well to those kind of activities. Yes, absolutely. So we, we've come to some of our research shows that, for example, uh, cows are most comfortable when the temperature is between 16 and 26 degrees. Mm-hmm. If they're um, hotter than that or colder than that, then uh, they're using up uh, excess energy or energy that may be turned into increased milk production. So that's where, for example, um, shoulder belts are great because they keep cows cool or they warm them up through through shade through the winter period. Um, but of course, there are other benefits such as biodiversity. We have dairy farmers who who previously worked in fairly open and sparse paddocks, and now it takes them a bit longer to answer their mobile phone because they're listening to the birds and the trees and just enjoying some of those biodiversity benefits. But we've also carried that concept of biodiversity into pastures. So. So I guess the the prevailing um, pasture of choice or pastures of choice are focused around ryegrass. We've been doing some work recently in the last two or three years looking at biodiversity uh, with pasture species. So um, we've found that multi-species pasture, um, on the one hand, increase biodiversity, but they also increase um, soil health in the process with deep, deeper-rooted plants and drawing nutrients at depth. So it's a really interesting and an emerging field that we're, we're paying a lot of attention to. Mm, sounds great. So and just you just mentioned there about the biodiversity in pastures and also to, um, you know, when you were talking about tree plantations as well or shelter belts, about that adding to the mix of biodiversity too. What are some of the benefits that you think farmers could see by enhancing biodiversity on their farm? Sure. Um, so w- with pasture species, let's say cut across the four or five different uh, plant groups with legumes and brassicas, um, two or three other plant groups, they it um, creates a sort of a, a wonderful complexity under the ground, which is usually, I mean, soil is a fairly benign thing. You can't see it in much the same way that you can't look below the surface of the ocean. But when you've got all of this wonderful interaction between different plant types performing different uh, functions for the soil and also exchanging nutrients and DNA material in between, it it brings about a 
an almost complete change to the soil condition. Um, it makes it more friable. It opens up and provides the porosity for roots to travel down and dung beetles to travel up and down and earthworms. Um, it also increases the soil moisture holding capacity. There's a dairy farmer who talks about tripling the size of his underground water tank. So when you've got, you know, surface water sheeting off usually, when soil has got the capacity to hold more moisture, um, at, at summertime, when, you know, it's not uncommon to see bed soil in January, February, March. You have this, um, this extra moisture that's available at depth and helps carry the pastures through uh, some of those more marginal times. So there are two or three major benefits, you know, to sort of a, 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 a triple win, really, uh, as far as uh, getting into those species. Mm. And and obviously then too, I suppose, you know, having in terms of above the ground of the things that you can see, you've also then got, you know, a variety of uh, forages for the for the cattle to consume, which I'm assuming, you know, that provides that provides a bit of diversity in their diet as well, which could bring about other benefits to to, to cow health and and yes. possibly production as well. Yeah, and in the same way that um, diversity in shelter belts uh, with diversity in pasture species with the different coloured flowers, you get the benefit, beneficial insects moving in. So you've got your lace wings and all of those, and so red-legged earth mite and some of those um, pests that usually are controlled by expensive and harmful uh, application of chemicals. These beneficial bugs can do um, extraordinary things in the pastures as much as they can in the shelter about uh, running alongside the fence. Mm. Okay. Well, um, Jeff, we've we've covered a little bit of area. I will say I did send Jeff a little bit of a few questions of, um, just to get us started with, and we haven't even asked any of those questions yet. Um, but I, I will say one thing, um, which I have found with you, Jeff, in the past is your, your, your knowledge, the knowledge that you have that you're able to share with with farmers, whether they're part of the land care community or whether they're part of the general farming community is amazing. So I think um, you've already demonstrated one of the benefits and one of the options for farmers is to get in touch with the land care network um, just to find out more information about what, what these different aspects or different management techniques, different changes that you can make on farm. Um, so it's great to have that that background um, to, to our conversation now, Jeff, but just sort of moving on from that, thinking about, you know, you've got a farmer that's interested in making some changes. What sort of projects might they um, look for, look to start, and what sort of funding, I suppose, or funding opportunities might there be out there for farmers to access? Yeah, sure. Um, if there was, say, a short list of half a dozen um, activity areas, I, I would be um, encouraging farmers to look at revegetation, so the shoulder belts that we've discussed before. Um, I think everything really starts with whole farm planning. Okay. It, it's certainly good to do these individual things like re reconsidering what pastures you use, uh, uh, sorry, uh, use for your stock, mm. um, the type of things that you might apply, apply to the soil as stimulants for plant growth, but whole farm planning is a really good way to, to start off. Um, education, I think, is a key thing. So they say that the hardest paddock to work on is, 
the one up here in the head. Okay. Um, and the and so I'm really, the yeah, the top page. <laughs> top page, yeah. <laughs> With hopefully, hopefully not too many kangaroos jumping around in that top page. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you um, never know. There's all sorts of people out there. I'm sure there's some yeah, that's right. have to manage the top paddock no matter what's coming in and out of the gate. No. Yeah. But, but certainly education, which doesn't need to be a formal sit-down do, of course, but, um, you know, it could be peer-to-peer learning, talking to your uh, farmer discussion groups. So I think education and, and being open to learning different ways is, is a key thing. And, um, yeah, just in more recent times, we didn't really see coming, but, the, the molly species pasture is one of those sort of um, things that they they can employ that brings about a very quick result. You don't have to wait three, four, five, six years to have carbon increase in the, in, in your soil levels. Um, it's a, it's a system um, that uh, brings about those multiple benefits that I mentioned before, being uh, amount of, of pasture yield, improvements to the soil, and so forth. So. Yeah, I'd say that's about the key four or five things that I would be. Yeah, okay. So if you, we'll come back and talk a little bit about the education opportunities and discussion groups and things there, because um, that's something that you've mentioned, which I think is of great value and interest to people, and certainly the education aspect too. Um, Mm. But I suppose if you were thinking about, you know, maybe some changes that you did want to make over your property over the next four or five years. How would you go about looking at um, developing a whole farm plan? Yeah, so I'd, I'd be on the lookout for um, for workshops that are they're often provided by industry bodies. So it could be West Vic Dairy, for example, one that's very relevant. Uh, also, CMA such as Corangamite CMA they run they run courses. Mm-hmm. Land care, of course, we yep. uh, we we have regular. Um, projects and activities associated with those. I think also, yeah, industry bodies are pretty good. Um, Meat and Livestock Australia doesn't necessarily relate to dairy, but Victorian Farmers Federation, they're probably the most, uh, other than formal education, as in through colleges or university, uh, for short course stuff uh, and uh, for learning other than reading books by thought leaders, um, I'd suggest that they would be a very good starting point. So thanks for that, Jeff. That's great. And I think the benefit of creating a whole farm plan is it does give you that overall view and probably some of the priority areas for your particular property will come up to the surface. Sorry, that's a really bad pun. Um, But, yeah, they will come up to the surface so that you can really prioritise what it is, the different projects that you might like to tackle. So. If a farmer came up with, um, if they did have a whole farm plan or even if they didn't have a whole farm plan, for starters, they might say, actually, I know I really want to put a shelter belt, you know, in my on my west boundary, for example, um, to block some of the prevailing southwesterly winds, which which is um, what we get a lot of down here in southwest Victoria and in the Hatesbury district that you know so well. So if they did have that as an initial initial project that they've identified that they'd like to start looking at undertaking, what, what sort of thing would you suggest that they could do in terms of funding they might seek or people they could talk to to start getting um, getting that project underway? Sure. Yeah, look, I, I'd certainly recommend that people approach Landcare. We have a, a rolling 
program called Biofung, which is our domestic name for uh, revegetation. So it's either um, putting up shell belts or even protecting remnant areas of vegetation. Um, I'm also aware that the shire, as in, and uh, I think it would apply to most shires, Karangamite Shire have a program called Environment Support Fund. Mm -hmm. That's funding $2,500. And even if it doesn't uh, provide all the funding for a project, often they look for a co-contribution. Uh, it's certainly a good starting point, um, particularly if you're in the early stages of putting in shelter belts. And I think also to keep an eye out for federal and state funding programs as well. Sometimes you'll see them publicised on websites or in papers, that sort of stuff. Um, I would have to say that the majority of them, I think, are for not-for-profit or industry bodies. But if you have a, a relationship and you're aware that a land care group or, or another uh, NRM body uh, has projects funded, um, you'd certainly keep an eye out uh, for those funding opportunities. And in our case, we usually issue expressions of interest. So we put it out there to say, are you interested in doing the project? Um, here's an expression of interest form. We make sure it's not it's not a 48-page document to fill out, that it's okay. usually mercifully brief. Um, and or just simply contact the Landcare Network as well. And we might at that time have some other uh, funding opportunities as well. Okay. And then what sort of financial support or other assistance would, you know, could dairy farmers expect to receive through a funding opportunity like the BioFund that you mentioned? How does it sort of work yeah. when you when you get down to the finer detail of it, yeah, I suppose? Sure. Yeah. So with, with BioFund, um, that funding round would uh, support the purchase of seedlings uh, the farmer or landholder usually provides the fencing. Yeah. In some cases, it may not be seedlings. It might be a soil type or, or a topography that's suitable for direct seeding as well, and that's a little bit different in that it's not planting individual seedlings. It's it's sort of a low form of um, low tillage form of ploughing and then seed is broadcast on the ground with a with a medium like a sand like medium, so that's a, a a very quick and efficient way to get the seed out in the landscape, so to speak. Oh. Um, and yes, and periodically there are other projects like climate resilient farms and increasing soil carbons where we we might have incentives for fencing rebates or for um, subsidies for multi species pastures and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, those pro those programs tend to be periodical, whereas the biofund or the the revegetation program is uh, the so called flagship project for the network that has been ongoing for about twenty five years. Mm, okay, and then in terms of uh, landholders looking to apply for this type of funding, in terms of them working out, you know what the area is, um, you know how many how many seedlings they want to plant. Um, that kind of, you know, advice regarding the project itself, are they able to get that direct from someone like yourself or through the Landcare website? Where, where can they go for some of that more technical information? Yeah, we can provide that. So uh, the way that that usually works is we organise a site visit. We, we go out and have a look at what the, um, the aspirations or the plans of the, of the farmer mm -hmm. are. Um, and so we'll advise on species, we'll advise on the best location for 
shoulder belts, we, for example, will say don't do a shoulder belt on the um, northern part of the uh, east-west dairy track because it'll be wet through winter. Um, so we come up with, a, a, I guess, a fairly wide range of advice. Uh, often we'll do some mapping and and then uh, send that back to the landholder to say, okay, we discussed these sites today. Is this your understanding of where we might have the shoulder belts placed? And then there's a yes and a no and some some adjustments. And then if it is funded through the biofund project, then then it goes into um, through a process where the landholder often gets the fencing in place and then we organise the seedlings uh, to go out uh, to the farmer to be planted. Okay, great. And I know I've seen um, other support that you get from community groups and schools and things like that, you know, to get involved with actually hands on the ground, hands-on help to actually do the plantings as well. Yeah, that's right, periodically. Uh, in fact, we had a, a, a half-page story in the paper recently. Periodically, those opportunities come up where schools might have programs where they're keen to get the students away from screens and out of the school uh, into the sunshine and learning a little bit more uh, about the landscape, whether it's part of a geography class or a general education class. Um, and it's really great to sort of engage students when they're very, very young because... Uh, when they have that experience of being out in the landscape on a little planting trip, uh, I, I can assure you 100% that they'll be getting mum or dad to drive back past that farm to see how their trees grow. Yeah. Um, and so it's a terrific experience and, and a great learning. Uh, and there is that, that general sort of theory that the further upstream you go and um, engage with with people at a younger age, it's it becomes a lifelong a lifelong. Mm. Um, Appreciation of what uh, of what uh, revegetation can do, or nature in general, for that matter. That sounds fantastic. So you know, you've given us a bit of idea too on on the you know the dollar amounts, so to speak, about all the the split. You know, in terms of what the funding is, the fencing is, and I think a lot of farmers can probably work out the cost of fencing themselves and the time they require to do that. Um, in example of that bio fund, and obviously they can come to you to get that support, including the site visit and a bit of mapping, um, so that the, the project's got a greater chance of of working and being successful. And it sounds like too, you've got a, there's a fair bit of support you offer them in terms of helping them with their application form as well by providing some of that information and and insight into the project. Um, so that sounds really great. And then I suppose I was just going to ask you is, you know, have you, given that you've been working in the district for, for a long period of time now and you've seen a lot of changes, um, you know, what are some of those examples that you've seen that you've been particularly um, interested in to, to, to watch the, the change or have you had farmers that have started with a small tree plantation or shelter belt project and then they've gone on to other other more expansive projects over time. Any, any, without naming names, have you got any examples you could share with us? Yeah, absolutely. Look, there's a there's a farm that this one really, uh, I guess, it's lodged in my mind forever and a day. There's a a farm down around the the Curdy Vale area that was not, not a tree to be seen on the farm, mm-hmm. uh, and so. On a windy day, you'd walk onto the farm to talk about a, a, 
you know, potential project, you'd have to lean forward slightly because the wind was so strong. So um, in that case, the farmer, uh, uh, the new landowner, agreed to, he committed actually to about 15% of the farm being part of a revegetation program. Wow. And it, com- and it completely transformed the farm and it didn't take a decade. Wow. It only took three, three or four years. So, um, and they were shoulder belts that were 10, 15, 20, 20 metres wide. Yeah. Um, and to walk on the farm, uh, it became uh, what we would call an example or exemplar farm. The landowner invited us to take people back on the farm to see how transformative it was. And uh, and so we were walking out of the, into the paddock with a group of students and we said, right, in about 10 metres, this wind is going to drop to virtually zero. And you could see the look of, of surprise and delight on the faces of people when they understood exactly mm. what those sort of, I guess, benefits were. So, yeah, so there are farms like that. There are others that have um, focused not just on shelter belts, but they've looked at their energy systems, they've looked at how they might enhance the soil quality. So some great examples there, um, Jeff, of those couple of couple of farms that you talked about going from from a, a little project to a big bigger project, I suppose, uh, and then not only they're experiencing that benefit, but then being able to share it with others, which is a great, which is a great thing too, and a motivating, you know, to be able to share share your success and the benefits and everything with other people is a great motivator, isn't it? Yes, yeah, certainly is. Yeah, and and look, we um, we probably have two or three examples where the where the landholders have said basically, any time you want to come back to the farm. Uh, we'd, we'd certainly welcome other people to come and have a look at what we've done, um, and it's brilliant to have that sort of level of trust and, and and that relationship with farmers where they're effectively happy to open up their farm to others. Mm. And I suppose just sort of looping it back to what you said about the start in terms of the steps that people to ta- people can take, I suppose that's a, a good way to wrap it up in a way, I suppose, is that first thing to do you know if you are interested in something is is go out and find some more information and and what better way to do that than looking over the fence chatting to the neighbor or even you know getting involved in a discussion group that might have a farm trip a field trip to someone that's done some great things or tapping into the land care network and actually asking you know who's who's done some projects who can I go and learn from you know that's that's a fellow farmer yeah, that's right. And look, we um, even if it's not our own uh, programs such as Biofund, we also have access to information. We know, for example, that the CCMA, Karangamite CMA, may have a, a waterways project. Um, we'd be aware of, of, of other funding opportunities as well. So if not us, then, then certainly we can head people in the right direction. Yeah. So another great tip there too, Jeff, is to reach out to your local land care organisation or network or if you're not sure who they are, I suppose to to link in with your local catchment management authority or NRM, Natural Resource Management Organisation in your area. And like I said before, we'll put some of those links in with the um, podcast notes at the end. Um, but it's been really great. Um, chatting to you today, Jeff. I know you're a very passionate person that gets a lot of enjoyment out of sharing your knowledge with people, but also uh, helping other people to share from each other. 
Um, so it's been great having you on this podcast today to give us a bit of an outline of um, where people can start some tips and tricks on where to, to get some support, whether it's uh, learning support, knowledge support, or even financial support with their projects. Hmm. Very good. Yeah, thanks. And look, um, yeah, look, I'd say um, particularly their peer-to-peer learning as well, over and above what we can offer, I think even um, to talk to some of the, the farmers that have done stuff and and find out how they've gone about it. Each and every story will be individual, but what is in common is is the opportunities to go to organisations like ours and and just keep an open uh, open mind about uh, about what may be possible with practice change. So yeah, look, it's been great. Enjoyed the chat. If you would like to find out more about environmental management practices and how this can be part of your whole farm plan, please contact your Dairy Australia regional office or visit www.dairyaustralia.com.au. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast and remember that there are plenty more on a broad range of dairy industry topics covered in the Dairy Pod program. So please don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. If you have any questions or ideas for future podcast episodes, please get in touch with us by emailing dairypod at dairyaustralia.com.au. Thanks very much for listening and bye for now.